I didn't see where Daniel went. He was supposed to keep playing in the background when kids were dismissed so that it wasn't awkwardly silent. So I figured I'd just come up here instead of us all sitting here in awkward silence. We forgive you, Daniel. Don't do it again. We live in a remarkable country. We're made up of 50 states, 50 states, each with a a very unique history and identity, and yet we are one united nation. I've written a couple children's books this past year. They're in the illustration phase. One is about the gospel, and it's called The Goodest Good News, and the other is about America, and it's called The Greatest Great Nation. The book about America, it focuses on the three mottos upon which our country was founded, the three mottos that you will find imprinted on every single American coin, in God we trust, liberty, and e pluribus unum. E pluribus unum expresses our commitment to unity. It is Latin, and it means out of many, one. Here are two stanzas from the book. Many we are, and many we've always been, with different backgrounds and colors of skin. We are millions of people from all over the globe who have made our way here to call this place home. But though we are many, we are also just one, one people united in this race we must run. So stronger together, there's no place we'd rather be than this home for the brave and this land for the free. Now I would say, and I bet that many of you would agree, that in these last two years, we have seen what can happen when unity erodes. This must never happen in our church. That is essentially Paul's message at the beginning of this chapter to the Ephesians. Veritas Church, you are about to enter a season of change, the likes of which we have never seen as a church. For better or worse, for nearly 14 years, I have been your only lead pastor. And soon, though hopefully not from your hearts, I will be gone. And though God is behind all of this, and we know that it is for all of our good, we would really be fools to think it's not a prime opportunity for the devil to incite division. So let's carefully consider what Paul has to say this morning. And let's first pray together. Father in heaven, 
We ask that through your word and by your spirit, you would teach us now, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 918. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4 with me. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul begins the fourth chapter of his letter by pleading with the Ephesians. This is something that he is urging them to do. That means that it's very important to Paul. And what is so important to Paul is that the Christians in Ephesus walk a certain way. And when he uses the word walk, as he did back in chapter 2, verse 2, he means to describe the way you live your life. The way that you live your life, in Paul's language, is the way you walk. And here is how Paul urges his readers to live. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, Christians, what is your calling? Romans 1.6, we have been called to belong to Christ. We have been called, 1 Corinthians 1.9, into the fellowship of Christ. God has called us, Galatians 5.13, to freedom. He has called us, Ephesians 1.18, to a great hope. We have been called out of darkness and into light. And Paul says here, live your life in a way that is worthy of that. The Greek word that he uses for worthy means to weigh as much as. It means of like value and worth. And Paul uses it in the same way in at least three other places. In Philippians 1.27, he tells his readers to live lives worthy of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, worthy of God. And in Colossians 1.10, worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, live your life in a way that is of the same value and the same worth as your calling as the gospel, as God, as the Lord Jesus Christ. Live your life in such a way that it is of the same value as the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. How valuable is the gospel? How valuable is God? How valuable is Christ? No price tag. 
They are of infinite value. So here is what Paul is saying. Live your life in such a way that it is of infinite value. There is a way to live generously with those around you so that your life is valuable. And sadly, there is a way to live selfishly so that your life is worthless. Live your life in a way that is of infinite value. Two questions came to mind for me after understanding what Paul was saying here. First, how will I do that? Where will the the motivation to live like that come from? Where will the strength to live like that come from? And the answer is, the motivation and strength to live a life of infinite value is found in grasping the amazing grace of God described in chapters 1 through 3, which is why this plea at the beginning of chapter 4 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, because of everything I've taught you in chapters 1 through 3, that's the way this word links these two parts of the book. Therefore, Paul is saying, because of everything that I've taught you in chapters 1 through 3 about the grace of God, because of that, I urge you to live a life of infinite value. In other words, the motivation and the strength that you need to live this life fully is by the grace of God. And the second question that comes to mind is, what does this kind of life look like practically? What is living a life of infinite value? What does that look like practically? And that is exactly the content of chapters 4 through 6. In fact, this first verse could be a heading over everything else that we're going to read into this letter. What does it look like to live your life in a manner worthy of your calling? Paul is going to show us. And the first thing, the very first thing that is essential to this way of life is Christian unity. Look at verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So verse 3 is the motive behind verse 2. A Christian, like you and me, does verse 2 because they are, verse 3, eager for something, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So the first 16 verses of this chapter are devoted now to unity. 
This letter was written to Ephesus, but it was expected to be circulated among all the churches. So Paul was after unity, not only in that local church or in something like this local church, but also across all the Christian churches. The implication is very clear. If you want to live a life that is worthy of your calling, if you want to live a life that is of infinite value, you must do that in unity with other Christians. And so here are the two things that we have in our text today. Number one, we have the character of a united church. And that's in verses 2 through 3, how we must behave. And then number 2, we have the creed of a united church. And that is in verses 4 through 6, what we must believe. The character of a united church and the creed of a united church. Let's begin with the character. Let's read what Paul says in verses 2 through 3 again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in our churches depends on the character of our people. These are the attitudes necessary to maintain a bond of peace among us, and Paul lists five of them. Number one, humility. In some of your versions, this word is translated lowliness. In lowliness in Paul's day, humility in Paul's day was actually seen as a vice and not a virtue. And pride was seen as a virtue and not a vice. Humility, lowliness was seen as weak and undesirable. I think many people see humility or lowliness the same today. I think we often celebrate or even secretly admire pride. Pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Pride is an inaccurately high view of yourself. It's an inflated view of yourself, not a sober view of yourself. It's the opposite of humility. Romans 12.3 For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Pride is an inflated view of yourself that leads to a prioritizing of yourself. Humility, on the other hand, is a sober and accurate and biblical view of yourself that leads to a prioritizing of others. 
The test of whether or not you are humble is to ask yourself, am I here in whatever it is that you're doing? Am I here for the glory of God and the good of others? Or am I here for my glory and my good? So be humble, Paul says. Humility is essential for unity. Second, gentleness. In some of your versions, this word is translated meekness, which is my preferred translation. Gentle does not mean weak. The word gentle has always felt like weak to me. It's not actually what this word means. In fact, you have to be strong to be this word because it means gentleness of the strong. This is a gentleness of the strong or it is strength under control. The word meekness in this day was primarily used to describe an animal that was wild and had been tamed. So a horse that had been broken was now a meek horse. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says you need to be meek. Philosopher Jordan Peterson said something that's often taken out of context, but I understand what he means when he's speaking to young men. He has this famous quote, and he says to young men, be an absolute monster, then learn to control it. And when he uses the word monster, he means to be strong, be assertive, be competitive, be courageous, be bold, be brave, and then get it under control. Jesus is the perfect example of this. No one could say that Jesus was weak. No one could say that Jesus was passive. No one could say that Jesus wasn't courageous, but he was also gentle. He was the epitome of strength under control. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he said to us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and it's the first two words that are used here by Paul, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. To be meek, and we need more of this, is to be strong but controlled by the Lord. And this meekness, Paul says, it is essential for unity. Number three, patience. In some of your versions, this word is translated long-suffering. And this isn't long-suffering or patience with cars or computers or tools or appliances. This is patience with people. Sometimes people, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes people will be the cause of your suffering. They will be the cause of your suffering. And there is an instinct in us to retaliate 
And this word patience literally means to be resolved not to retaliate. That's patience. As Christians, we are very thankful that God has been patient with us. Because what we deserve, the retaliation that we deserve for our rebellion against him is not what we actually have received from him. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul writes, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Paul knew how bad he was. He said, God's mercy toward me, I think the reason he showed mercy toward me was to display how perfect his patience is. As an example, he said, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This patience is essential for unity. Number four, bearing with one another. And this is forbearance or tolerance. It assumes, this word assumes that there are people in your life who aggravate you and irritate you. This isn't necessarily people who are cruel to you or mean to you or even sin against you. These are people who, they just aggravate you. They just irritate you. You may have people in your life that aggravate and irritate. You may have people in your row this morning that irritate and aggravate you. Do not make eye contact with them right now. Because they're like, are you trying to tell me that we know who that person is, or are you telling me that person is me? But we know what this is like. They've got a different personality. They have different opinions, whatever it is, and it creates some opportunities for you. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with that irritation, that aggravation? Are you supposed to avoid them? Are you supposed to ignore them? Are you supposed to hope they don't become a member of your church? <laughs> We're to tolerate them. We're to forbear them. And it is absolutely essential for unity. And this tolerance, finally, it has a tone, and that tone is revealed in the end here. The fifth attribute Paul lists is, number five, in love. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that is the sense in which this word love is used here. Our love for one another is overarching, and it leads to this humility and to this meekness, and to this patience, and to this forbearance. So that is the character. That is the character of a united church, according to Paul. That is how we ought to behave toward one another in order to preserve unity. Now, that is not easy to do. This does not come easy 
And so Paul next, in verses 4 through 6, reminds us what we must believe. What we must believe is that our unity, it is a reality. In a sense, what Paul is going to say to us is, be who you are. Remember, this is not a unity that we're called to create or facilitate. It's a unity that we're called to maintain. It's a unity that we're called to preserve. This unity that we have as Christians, it is a reality. We have been united to Christ and to one another. This now is the creed of a united church. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven parts to this creed. Seven sayings about the unity of our God. Seven times the word one is used. Let's quickly look at each of them. Number one, there is one body, verse four. There is one body. What does that mean? Ephesians 1.23, earlier in this book, said, He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so this means one church. Every true believer is a member of Christ's church and ought to be treated as such. There may be people in our church or in other churches that are immature. There may be people who are confused theologically, but if they know and understand the gospel and are true believers, then they are part of this same body. They are here. They may be in Armenian churches. They may be in charismatic churches. They may be in Roman Catholic churches. If someone knows Christ and is a true believer then they are part of this one body. Second, there is one spirit, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So as Christians, we're not indwelt by different spirits. We're not indwelt by parts of the one spirit. No, as Christians, we are each indwelt by the Spirit of God. So one body, one spirit. Three, there is one hope, he says in verse 4. What is that hope? There's lots of places we could turn to, but 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is our future hope as Christians. Fourth, there is one Lord, he says in verse 5. There is one Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says the same. 
For us there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Fifth, there is one faith. That word faith can be used to describe the trust that we place in Christ, or it can be used to describe the body of truth that we all believe. I think that's the meaning here. There is one faith, like Jude 3, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Sixth, in verse 5, he says, there is one baptism. The word baptism, when you read the New Testament, the word baptism is used in some different ways. The word baptism is used to describe both baptism in water, we saw that today, and also baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work the Holy Spirit does upon your conversion to unite you to Christ. Not all Christians have been baptized in water, but every single Christian has been baptized by the Holy Spirit into fellowship with Christ and one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then finally, seventh, in verse 6, he says, One Father, one God and Father of all. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 again. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And this one God and Father of all, Paul writes, is over all and through all and in all. So what is Paul saying here? He is saying that to live a life of infinite value, to live a life of infinite worth, we must be eager to keep unity between us and those we want our life to be of value to. To live a life of infinite value, well, then we must be eager to maintain unity. To maintain unity between us and those who we want our life to be of value to. The character of our walk, Paul is saying, the character of our walk, it's got to be humble. It's got to be humble and meek and patient and forbearing and loving. And then the creed, the belief, 
beneath our unity. It must be this understanding that there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in weeks to come, Paul, we'll see, has more to say about this unity among us. I read this quote this week from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He said this 400 years ago. He said to Christians, labor mightily for a healing spirit. Away with all discriminating names, whatever may hinder the applying of balm to heal your wounds. Discord and division become no Christian. Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb To worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. For wolves to worry the lambs is no surprise, he writes. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Although we are many, May God keep us one. And may we take the responsibility to do our part in maintaining the unity of the church. This unity, it is on display every Sunday here as we take communion together. It's why we do this only when we gather together. It's why we do it together. It's why we do it at the same time. This displays our commitment to Christ and to one another. It displays our unity as we remember and celebrate the death of our Savior, which has brought us to God and has brought us to one another. You're welcome to take communion with us today if you are a baptized believer, if you've committed yourself to Christ and to his people, whether you're committed to this church or another that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. We'd ask you come forward and take the bread and the juice. And then if you'd return to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together in unity as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. And we ask that you would be glorified now as we pause and slow down and take time to remember and proclaim his sacrifice, his sacrifice in our place. God, that he paid the price that we should have to pay, that he lived the perfect life that we could not live, and through our faith in him, he gives us this righteousness 
so that we could be reconciled to you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.